Welcome to An Author Angle, the podcast series exploring creative expression and inspiration with authors, publishing professionals, and other creatives from all around the world. Listen up as host and publisher Ocean Reeve digs into the heart and heads of other creatives and the vision for their work. Be creative, be inspired, be published. An Author Angle, brought to you by Ocean Reeve Publishing. In this episode of An Author Angle, Ocean talks with Rhonda Valentine Dixon, avid writer and author of great-grandma Elska's Bamboo Cane. Writing, reading, sewing, card making, scrapbooking, cats, music, travelling and steam, locomotives. <laughs> the interests of Rhonda Valentine Dixon. You're a busy lady, Rhonda. Indeed. I'm um, always busy. What is it you're working on right now? Well, a number of things. I did not think anything less. Oh. <laughs> Roll them out, girl. Let's go. Fridays at the Queensland Writers' Centre, I concentrate on my larger project, which is the story of two girls who grew up in a Melbourne orphanage in the 1950s. And um, other days of the week, I work on articles for a data engineer that I work for in Chermside and uh, also do a lot of short story writing. And... um, I have actually. You've seen the latest children's book that I've written. I read it this morning. Did you? Mm. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd wait till the day that we have a sit down before I read it, so it's fresh in my head. Okay. So thank you for sending that through. Mm-hmm. So you're very busy. Yeah, yeah. That's not the only thing that you do with your time because you have a son with ASD, autism spectrum d- disorder. That's correct. Tell me what life is like in that space. Hectic, uh, particularly since getting support for him is can is time consuming it's just like having a full-time job at times um so we're hoping and wanting to get supported independent living for him right so it's finding the right kind of accommodation where he'll be safe and whether he lives with someone or not, lives on his own, I'd prefer him to be with someone because he's a social person despite having ASD. He, he enjoys people. He enjoys talking. So it's just ongoing. Every day we do something. Uh, and the services um, uh, just muck up their invoices so much. We've been charged again for <coughs> days twice. And so it's all that sort of thing working out. The NDIS has been an absolute nightmare. Now, I've self-managed because I was determined to understand what was happening for him. Um, and that has just been an absolute nightmare. When you ring the NDIS, you can't even get on to an accounts department. There is no accounts department. Just unpack self-managed. What do you mean by self-managed? Oh, we're managing the funding that the NDIA give him to live in this world in the most normal for want of a better for want of a better word normal way possible um if you think about someone like lindley who's classically autistic and very vulnerable he can't just pop off to the pub or pop off to the game on a saturday or something like that he's got to be supported all the time because he's very vulnerable. If a stranger went up and said, hey, bro, have you got $50? He'd give it to them. Um, or he, 
he'd be Lindley actually recites as he walks and he may be reciting something like um, Thomas the Tank Engine or a children's movie, Monsters, Inc. Um, and so he's very vulnerable to bullies, people who would um, belt him up to get what they wanted. So he can't be in the community on his own. When you talk about... Um Getting support and finding out whether you know he can live independently is that from from a mother's perspective that must be scary. Yeah, um, we know what he loves, so we know what to look for in the community to um, to make available for him. So we need to find the support to help him be able to do that. He loves being a working man. Yeah. And he um, he loves things that are repetitive. Before COVID, he worked in a car parts place, packaging small car parts. He was the only disabled person that went along that set up his own strategies for doing it quickly and efficiently. Oh. He'd set up 10 car parts on the desk and whipped them into a bag. So he'd have a number of lots of 10 car parts on the table and he whipped them up into the appropriate bags. Um, so, but it's finding people who will employ him. I mean, we've tried, we've tried places like um, Help Enterprises who say they're wonderful at providing employment for people with disabilities, but they have so many um, conditions. He's got to be able to work um, 10 disabled people or people with disabilities, if you want to be politically correct. I think it's all silly doing that. But um, You can say whatever you yeah, like on this podcast. It's, yeah, it's silly. Um, 10 disabled persons to one support worker. And I said, give him a chance. Um, but they're not prepared to do that. They've got to get I w the last conversation I had with Help Enterprises was that they had to get a number of ducks in a row before they could give that a go. Um, Lindley's downfall is that he loves motorcycles, motorcycle paraphernalia, and girls. Well, and is that a downfall? <laughs> I think that's a good thing. You like <laughs> motorbikes and girls. This is, this is, so far, he's ticking boxes, one day. <laughs> he is. He's 29. So if a pretty young lady <laughs> walked past his table, he'd stop and talk to her. So, um, so that's where they're saying he needs to be redirected. I understand that, but um, give him a chance. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, most people look at... Um, pe I'm going to... That's a generalised comment. I'll rephrase what I was going to say. There's a perception around other people that have autism or ADHD, whatever you want to call it, whatever it's called now, that there's no buffers. And that's the intimidating part of working or dealing with somebody that is in that sector, is that you know, you've got no, they've got no buffers, they're going to say and do whatever they want, they, don't, they can't think in that rational sense that they're going to hold themselves back. Do you find that's the case with your boy, with Lindley? That that buffer isn't there, and that's why people are kind of at arm's length with giving the assistance that you would like to see happen. No, I think in our case we've taught him um, the best that we could with the knowledge that we had and common sense, 
and um, when I say the knowledge, we we were students of autism so that we could understand how best to optimise our family life. And um, so um, he knows right from wrong. However, we now understand that he has... Uh, that, that he has developed an eating disorder, which is the opposite to what you would normally picture an eating disorder to be, to deal with the um, restrictions in life that you have to adhere to. He's developed a, um, an eating only the wrong things. So um, when he was 28, he came home and said, I don't want you to cook anymore because he knew I'd been hiding vegetables in his food forever um, and he cannot stand the taste of vegetables, the texture of some of them, certainly the colour. I don't know any autistic people who, any who eat anything that's green and round. So, so he said, um, I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, I'll cook myself. And I said, you pity, I don't ever have to cook again. So it's Monday night, pigs in blankets. Tuesday night, hamburgers without a vegetable in sight. Wednesday night, the rest of the sausages for more pigs in blankets. Thursday nights, fish and chips. And so it's like that. Well, I'm coming around to your house for tea from now on <laughs> because <laughs> I, I like the sound of that. <laughs> so is the, uh, when, you, when you say, well, you, you mentioned that because, because he's discovered that you're hiding vegetables in there, but you said that yeah. he's developed it because of... Anxiety. Anxiety. And, and it's that anxiety that um, because he can't, because he has to adhere to society's rules, that's why the anxiety is there. Or so more the restrictions put on him yes. rather than the rules because I could imagine autism, ADHD or not, there are frustrations that come with the way certain systems within our country operate yes and you know um, the covid situation i mean we've got a lot of people that are you know frustrated with with how that has been handled and how how that's been rolled out um it w it, i could only imagine what it would be like if that was you know your life is covid in a lot of ways because for him it is because you've got that constant restriction coming from the system that isn't allowing him to live the way he wishes, I guess. Exactly. Um, I am very good friends with neighbours so that they will call me if he's um, stopped a lady walking her dog or jogging along the street because he wants to tell her about his motorcycle paraphernalia. And even better if you'll try on the helmet, which just isn't appropriate. Yeah, and that's what I mean by buffer. Mm. You know, I, I don't think it's a case of that he doesn't know right from wrong because I know you and I know what you're like. And, I, you know, there'd be no doubt in my mind that he knows right from wrong. Yes. Uh, I know both your kids would. Um, but it's that buffer because of his, I hate the word disability, because of the yeah. situation he's in. Yeah. And that buffer is intimidating to a lot of people. Yes. And I think that... You know, when you're looking at a job situation, people aren't prepared to take the risk on somebody like that because yes. they think it's in the too hard basket. Yes. And, and I can imagine that. 
can imagine the frustration that comes with that. You've written a book about the, uh, in this arena, you've how to stop your words from bumping into someone else's. Yes. That's a real cool title. It is a cool title. And that's um, he somest- sometimes still uses that phrase when he knows he wants to interrupt. He says, excuse me, excuse me, your words are bumping. And um, um, we wrote that when he was in primary school because he needed the scripts to use in school to ask or to interrupt the teacher because he needed something, whatever that was. Um, and that just has, it's still selling. And that was 15 years ago that we wrote that. That's fantastic. Well, you yeah. say we. Oh, Anna Tullimans and myself, she is a mother of two sons, uh, similar to my children, except that um, Daniel is not classically autistic. He's Asperger's, right. so he's gone through uni and is uh, living in New Orleans as a um, computer whiz. And the younger son uh, is similar to Meredith um, and uh, my Meredith, and um, he's a pilot. Okay, okay. Um, your daughter? Yes. Are you, I didn't know this, has she got? Meredith, um, they both have um, epilepsy, um, right. but um, in these later, at Meredith's 31 now, and she's managed to not seize for a few years now. So um, Meredith was also diagnosed with attention deficit without hyperactivity and sensory integration dysfunction. So her senses didn't work in sync. So um, it was a it was a hard road. What do, what do you what do you put it down to? Like the the, the resilience you've shown as a mum. What's what do you put it down to? Um, I didn't want people to think my kids were little shits. <laughs> because have you met my kids? They are little shits, <laughs> and they don't have ADHD. <laughs> so no, Mer- um, Lindley would uh, go up when he, when he was an infant, uh, you know, a, a toddler. He'd go up and touch ladies' pantyhose legs. So I thought, crikey, okay, you've got to be honest, deal with this, and and told them, I'm terribly sorry. My son's autistic. He likes the feel of the pantyhose. I'm terribly sorry, you know. And um, the same with throwing bark and, and it getting on people. And it was all tactile stuff. So I became adept at apologising. That's one thing I did. And the other thing was the more I talk about it, the more people realise that this is a real issue and the kid isn't a little shit. Yeah, yeah. So Most people would have been pretty understanding once you said that. Most though. people were. Um, and... Um, I even had uh, Winnie ran away once and was because he wanted to explore um, and uh, or he was distressed about something. In this particular time, a woman was standing on her front veranda and I said, I'm terribly sorry he ran through your yard. He's autistic and he's in the middle of a meltdown. She said, I'm a teacher and I thought something was amiss. I wasn't upset or anything so I just became really adept at apologising yeah sometimes I see you apologising when you've got nothing to apologise for Rhonda <laughs> 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 um, but that's okay I got used to that uh, okay you've you mentioned about the, the bumping books done very very well yes. you must be quite pleased with that and oh yes the, imagine the people that's helped I'm just yeah yes that's one thing we want as authors I mean I, I think 
even when we're writing fiction or we're writing children's books, we want it to achieve a purpose, you know, entertain or make them yes. laugh or take them into an, an escape journey. Yes. Um, but most people that write nonfiction, it is about to to improve or better the lives of the reader, and yes. hopefully they grab something out of that that can help ha- make that happen. Um, writing a book like this, especially 15 years ago, where this was not a common, not as common as no. it is now. So it would have been quite challenging to promote a book like this and to get it into the hands of those that needed it, Look, wouldn't it? Look, we didn't do any promotion. What happened was um, an educator in Sydney loved it and took it everywhere with her. So conferences, seminars, anything she did, she took it with her. And the same with a bookseller, um, ASD bookseller here in Brisbane. Um, she had a shop front and she also had a mailing list. Um, both those people would buy it in the thousands. And Fantastic. Yeah. You've done really well there. Yeah. Um, what's your vision for all of your books? As an author, we're talking about this, you know, what we want from them. Am I right in what I just said before? Do, you know, we want people to be entertained. When people read your book, what do you want books? What do you want them to take away from it? Because you write such a wide genre. I know. I'm, I, I, look, I don't intend to write any more children's books. Those two, the one about Alska and my father's um, biography, they just fell out of my head Yeah. Um, because I felt so strongly about them. Um, um, now they are quite personal. I mean, we'll get we'll talk to about Oscar in a minute. But mm-hmm. um, reading your your story that you sent me this morning, uh, you know, it is quite personal. And the, for that reason, I would say that you're publishing more to fulfil a creative need within yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's true. And uh, and I don't think a traditional publisher would pick up um, Cedric's greatest love. No, no. Um, but what about you? You know, you're writing uh, other work as well. Yeah. Um, well, the uh, obviously the articles on ASD and the NDIS are to inform. Um, I think the major work that I'm doing um, on the two girls, it it's Australian history. It needs to be told. It needs. It's like. Um, Alice's Daughter, written by Rhonda Collard Spratt, an Aboriginal, I don't know whether they say that, an Indigenous Australian, who um, was taken from her mother and (coughs) put in a mission. Her mother was taken as well, and her grandmother was taken as well. That story should teach us to not allow these things, Just, just like Karen Webber's book. Teach the world to tell. There does need to be more open discussions around what yeah. has happened in the past, and and you know if we don't learn from it, we're doomed to repeat it. We've all heard that. Yeah. And I think that you know, as a society, we're seeing a lot of these old mistakes still happening. Yes. And, and that's what worries me about Lindley going into su- supported independent living. We're going to be so careful about who supports him mm. because he's so vulnerable. Because if someone hurt him, he would yell. His major defence is a very loud, booming voice. And um, he would be the one that would be handcuffed. The other person would scarper. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, uh, I understand that concern. I think that... 
what's going to create the change in my mind is these groups that have been forming. So, you know, you mentioned Karen's book and, and one of the things that I want to see happen there is, is more secular groups talking about the issue around child abuse. Um, if you've got groups doing it, more groups doing it, they're going to interlink eventually uh, because the groups get larger. So mm. it starts with family and, you know, you, you build out from there. It's, it's the trusted people in your life, isn't it? Mm. And if you're writing the book that you're writing about, you know, the, the woman in Australia, the two girls many years ago, um, the hope is that you end up having discussions around that with other people that may have gone through similar circumstances mm. because these stories not only are to open the discussion and, and hopefully create a bit of change, but they're allowing people to talk about their past and their stories yes. as well and there's healing in that. Yes, isn't there? there is. There is. Um, going back to groups, um, Anna started the Asperger Syndrome Support Network back in 1995 or something like that. And um, and I came on board as the librarian. And um, we were fortunate that our psychologist wrote a book that became the Worldwide Bible for Asperger Syndrome. And um, he would... Uh, we were the only group that he allowed to film his seminars and have in the library. So we were able to help a lot of families. We had about 880 families on the book. In, in you see what I mean? And they were all to be positively influenced by that information. Yeah. And that, yeah. Uh, that, that's where I think the, the, you know, the secular groups is where it begins. And it's never going to happen from a legislative or a political level no. because they really don't get all, it all unless the they're in it. Like um, Autism Queensland, um, that started as a parent group. AEIOU, that did too. Many groups start out as parent groups. Yeah. Would those groups you just mentioned, are those parents still a part of it? I wouldn't think um, Autism Queensland. Um, I'm not sure about AEIOU. Um, it would be interesting to know because, like, you, you would, like, at the arc with Zena, yes. right? That they've been through this. I don't ever see Simon and Zena not being a part of that organisation because, mm. you know, the, their heart and soul is in it. And I think there's a lot more strength that comes from organisations like that when the people that are running it, that are in management in it, have experienced what it's like to go through that. Oh, you know, for sure. You know, because then they, they understand more. It's like, oh, in a lot of ways, we know, oh, I'm going to probably step out on a limb here and say something I shouldn't, but hey, this is me and this is what I do. Um, I, I have a slight issue around certain counsellors that if you're going to a counsellor that has not experienced what you've experienced and that's the reason you're going there, how can they possibly understand or relate to it? Yes. And many, many years ago when I was um, dealing with my adoption, so it was my late teens, early 20s, my dad paid for me to go to a psychologist and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this guy. He's a lovely guy because he was a great guy but everything he said about how I could manage the thoughts and feelings I was having around it um, made no sense to me. I was like, dude, you don't know really what you're talking about. The mm -hmm. only thing he did say to me that did matter was that life is a tightrope and underneath the tightrope is a whole lot of shit. And every now and then you fall off the tightrope and you land in shit. And it's horrible. Mm. But you've got to remember that you look up and you can still reach the tightrope. 
And I've, I, I've remembered that, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years later. I've still got that in my head, obviously. So that was one thing I took out of it. But I felt that if they didn't understand what it was like to feel what I was feeling, how could they help me? And I think there's going to be a lot of people that go to organisations where they're seeking guidance or assistance or help. They're going to be looking for that. So yeah. I think it's important there are people that are in there that know what that is like. I, I agree with that totally. When the kids were at school, I would... Um, uh, just once I went into a meeting and I said, I want what is best for my child. Huge mistake. They come back with, we want what's best for your child as well, which is crap. They want what fits in within the budget constraints of the school, of the system they're working in. So I learned very quickly, don't ever cry and say that again. And then after that, my husband and I both started sitting in with other parents in their meetings so that they didn't cry, so that they had someone who understood exactly what they were going through. My husband used to um, go before work and so he was in his suit and with his briefcase and uh, some of the schools got really upset. They thought it was the parent's lawyer (laughs) and he didn't inform them and yet he wasn't. (laughs) Probably a good thing. (laughs) And then there was one school in Jibang that recognised him as Lindley's father and said, that's that Lindley's father, you know, like that. So... So um, we made a difference for the parents because they were able to say what they wanted without bursting into tears. Good. Yeah. Let's talk about, um, let's go back to you being an author generally. What is something that becoming an author has happened for you that you didn't expect? Complete and utter joy. Really? It's what I've always meant to do. I used to write as a child, um, Um, there's something in Kelly Cox's book that's coming out very soon that describes how it was for me. Um, But then life got in the way. You had to work and you had to um, accomplish things. Um, So I didn't write again until I had to, and that was... um, to inform about autism, to right. help the kids, not just Lindley, but other kids as well. So you found your calling, Rhonda? Oh, absolutely. It's quite interesting, and, and you've heard me say this so many times over the years, which is we're all creative and we're born that way. Yes. And whatever that creative uh, expression for you or for any individual is, whether it's writing, dancing, music, whatever it is, as we go through that lovely system called the education system, it gets a bit squeezed out of us and we get reprogrammed to believe we needed to be teachers, lawyers, engineers, whatever it is. And when we go into the workforce and we realise as you know, young adults, hold on, it's clicking, and there's a lot of frustration that comes with that time in life where we're questioning, was this what we're supposed to be doing? This doesn't feel right. I'm supposed to get a job, get a partner, get married, get a house, whatever, have children. The whole time there's this intrinsic desire within you that you don't really know what it is at the time until you've been called to do it. And in your yeah. case it was it was a very personal thing because it was your family, but 
you know, once you've got a taste of it, it all comes flooding back yeah. to what it was like when you were a kid writing those stories. Yeah, and um, I, it was recognised at school. I topped English in my course in um, high school and, um, and third in the whole course, I think it was. Fifth or something like that was high up. Um, and that's because I dropped the maths. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, uh, so, so it was recognised. Uh, I was complimented a couple of times, but I didn't have the confidence to say, "What can I do with this?" And uh, you know, I but it's not the norm, Rhonda. People, you know, no. you don't say, "Like, I, I wanted to be a filmmaker." Can you imagine what they said to me when I when I'd say that? I mean, it was. Uh, I remember walking into the WIT, remember the yep. Taranaki Polytechnic? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because for those listening, Rhonda and I come from the very same place in New Zealand, which is awesome. Um, and the training institution back there was, um, you know, they were running uh, a, a nationally recognised film and television course that could get me into the industry. Yeah. But I didn't know what to ask. So I rocked into the admin office and said, oh, look, I, I want to make movies. What do I need to learn? And they laughed at me. They literally laughed at me. And I'm going, I don't know the right questions to ask. Yes. Thankfully, one of the ladies there said, this is what we have available in the creative arts. And she was rather dismissive yes but it gave me the information i needed to know to go ahead and do it so i mean the system isn't programmed to support that creative expression it's programmed to support the government need to get people into the workforce exactly and you know if you're going to have to go and lay roads down or you know be a lawyer be a doctor whatever it is that's what they want because there's more money in it for them there's more guarantee in that for Mm. them screw that crap it's right Hey, yes, let's, absolutely. Let's, let's create, let's produce, because I think what we've seen, and I've certainly seen this in my 20 years of being in publishing, the impact our books can have changes lives. Yes. And I'm not dismissing the value of a doctor. I would dismiss no. the value of a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Sorry to any lawyers out there. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm not dismissing any of those roles. And if that's what people want to do, all power to them. Yeah, um, because they're still helping people. They are. They are. But there's something about what creativity can do and what, can, what it can spark in somebody that is literally life-changing. Mm. And I've seen it. Look at Taika Waititi. Yeah, exactly. It's Wonderful t- example. These uh, just illustrates the value of living our core authentic life of what we came on this planet to do. And yeah. a, and we don't know it consciously when we're children, but it is there. Mm. It is right there. And, you know, I mean, I wanted to be an ice cream truck driver and a cowboy. <laughs> all, all I can tell you now is that you look around my office, you can see I love country music. So yeah. I would say I'm a bit of a cowboy. Yeah. And, man, I love ice cream. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Where, what do you wish you'd known that you know now when you started out writing, what was one of the things you've learned? You're going, damn! I wish I'd done that when I got up, when I first started. Oh gosh, I don't really know. Just how to not to be afraid to ask. Um, That's a good one. Mm, because the lack of confidence comes from my background. Um, my mum suffered undiagnosed, therefore untreated, depression and was not engaged with me. So I was an alone child, not lonely because I had my imagination, but an alone child. Right. And um, 
and anything that I wanted to do that was creative was put down. I was fortunate to be given a violin in high school and ran with that, loved it, but didn't even think to ask my father if I could learn the cornet, um, which I should have done because um, my family were brass bandsmen. But yes, asking. Do you know how to play the cornet now? I've been teaching myself. Have you really? <laughs> when Good I on you. Yeah, um, I started nine months ago. Oh, wow. That's cool. Can you still play the violin? I could probably knock out something, but I don't because Lindley can't cope with the pitch of one violin. Right. Um, he can cope with a whole orchestra, and he'll tell you that his favourite piece of music is Mussorgsky's Pictures at the Exhibition, but he can't cope with a single fiddle. So, um, FYI, Flash knows how to play classical tuba. He tells what? no one that, but he told what? me when I first met him and I thought, well, I'm never going to let that go. Wow, that's <laughs> wonderful. I, uh, yes, I'll show you later. I do have a tape of me um, on the phone. Go you. Yeah. Well, I, I'm learning to play the guitar. So, oh, you know, good. One day we'll have a, have a Taranaki reunion with a corn <laughs> and the guitar and see how we go. Trust me, you'll be way better than I am. Uh, best tip for other people thinking about becoming an author, what would you say to them? Just write. Yep. Write. Let it all come out. You can edit later. That's what I have been doing with um, a lovely lady. You've met her. Um, she came to me and after a 40 years with a narcissist, she was shell-shocked like you would not believe. And I said, write. Write about it. It will be cathartic. She is. And she's starting off with stories in Motueka and um, just beautiful little stories of what life was like for kids 75 years ago. She was. And, um, yeah, so we will reconnect. I, I'm sort of, I suppose, mentoring her. Go you. Yeah. I love it. I love it. It's a really good tip too, just write, because yeah. I, I do a writing mentorship with um, many authors all around the world, so I'm dealing with different cultures and different languages and then trying to help the authors to articulate themselves in their in their writing. And this morning I was on the on a call with somebody who's just about to enter into the writing mentorship and usually I have this thing about research that I incorporate into non-fiction authors uh, about where that takes place and how it should be introduced into your writing and so not to you know take you away from your focus when you when you are in the midst of some creative wonder. And I completely changed my shift with this today because, and I wouldn't say I'd do it with every author, but this author was saying, oh, look, I don't really, I, I want to do it, but I don't really know what I want to write about. So for, that's why my call before you walked in went for an hour. It was that lady I was talking to. Wow. And we managed to, I, I got her to tell me about her life, the, the, the revised version in 45 minutes. And taking some notes and just doing what I do creatively, which is I can sit with somebody, they can tell me about themselves in half an hour and I can tell you what you should write about. <laughs> and I um, managed to articulate where I wanted this to go. And I told her to write down 10 words that uh, she, words, not sentences, not two words um, at all, just one word, 10 words, if that makes sense, yes. Uh, of what it takes to be the parent that she is and because she's a solo mum with four kids mm -hmm. and what it takes to be the successful businesswoman she is. And she goes, oh, yeah, and what do we do? I said, no, just write 10 words. Mm -hmm. Just write. 
And so she's going to send them to me on Friday. And then I said, once we've got them, I will show you the tasks that will come out of that. Mm -hmm. And under no circumstances are you to research anything. Mm -hmm. You stay off the computer in regards to going online. Don't pick up any books. Don't rely on anything that you've recalled just right organically. Because in that conversation, I could see that her just sitting down and doing it and just letting it flow, we would bring out the magic. Mm-hmm. If she started to distract herself or move away from that, we would lose that edge that I know could come from the writing. So really good advice, Rhonda, to tell people just to sit down and do it. And going back to what you were just saying, you're absolutely right because I've just made that mistake. Have you? Yes, in a um, short story that I wrote, which I'll, I'll send you, it's, um, it's really rather good. Well, I should hope so. Look at this confidence coming out of you now. (laughs) Fantastic. About a dude who puts a... A dude. (laughs) Keep going, Rhonda. A dude. (laughs) He's a pompous git. (laughs) Is it about me? (laughs) No, but he wants to bring awareness to his business. He has a tyre business in Ponsonby Road in Auckland. And, of course, he puts a whole heap of used tyres in Mount Eden and sets them alight. Well, that's one way to do it. I love this. Keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'll send that story to you. And the mistake I made was introducing New Zealand and talking about the seismic activity before I went into his story. And um, and I thought I thought at the time it was it was wrong, but I but I love the seismic activity of New Zealand. That's why I went to Iceland to compare the two countries. <laughs> so, and then um, a friend said to me yesterday, too much, Rhonda. Too much. So you're right. I shouldn't have done the research. <laughs> when you're writing creatively, when you're writing fiction and, and something like that, yeah, the research comes later. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think it's different for everybody. I mean, there's a lot of. I've got this author in Singapore at the moment, and she's um, she's writing a business book, and it's woman in business, and uh, you know, she can't. I can't see her writing what sh- I know she's got inside her unless she is allowing that research opportunity to come in. So, uh-huh. I mean, it is different for everybody. I yeah. think for me, I can't write and research. i just got to write. You know, I, I write how I talk. And at no time do I go onto a computer and look at something and then talk. You know, I, I'm sitting there in front of people talking and that's how I want my how I want readers to take my work is that I am talking to them. Mm. And I've had the advantage of having a few people say to me, oh, you know, I read your latest book and it sounds like you're shouting at me. I said, have you met me? You know, that's kind of how I am. So, you know, yeah. I'm looking at the levels on this and I, I note, note how loud I am compared to yours. <laughs> typical ocean, typical. Mm-hmm. All right, now we're going to talk about something really, really cool, something that I was a part of, which is Great Grandma Elska's Bamboo Cane. Yeah. And when, we, when did we publish that, Rhonda? 2017, October 2017. 2017, and it's a wonderful story about a woman you know here in Brisbane that you were doing Tai Chi with. Still. Still doing, my doing bad. Doing Tai Chi, yes. How she's, old is Elska? She's going to be 100 soon, and she still does Tai Chi every week. Oh, my goodness, I forgot to I forgot to say I couldn't go this morning. <laughs> I forgot to <laughs> tell Glenn. Do you know what I liked about that is that you banged the actual <laughs> Oh, I forgot. No, don't see you apologise and didn't have to. Um, yeah, so, so once a week. And look, she is just such a delight. Um, and when she lost the cane... And we have forms in Tai Chi. We use swords. We use nothing at all. 
and we use canes. And instead of having a walking stick, because she doesn't need one for mobility, she just simply uses this cane she's had for over 50 years. And when she lost it and was so uh, devastated, and when she said she feels she ought to confess to her mother, that just captivated me. I knew I had to tell the story. It was a, like I was at the launch and it was a really beautiful... It was a happy... Yeah, it was really, yeah. really good. And uh, it was something that, I, I mean, for her, at the age, like she was in her 90s, and well, she still is, obviously, um, what a massive moment in a, in a later part in life to have someone write that kind of story about her and show the 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 strength that she has and the value she has yeah. as, as and and that's one of the things that the book shows the value in elderly people if only you'll take a look yeah exactly i mean my grandfather taught me the best lesson ever if you want respect you give respect yes. and that kind of removed the respect your elders thing from my life because i it wasn't that i don't respect older people of course i do i think they're, they're living dictionary are uh, living libraries yes um but they've got so much that they can learn uh, that we can learn from them yes. and and vice versa you know they, they, they look at you made a comment to me before this podcast started about technology so uh, if you could see her face people i'll tell you <laughs> Um, and obviously as someone that's older than me there's a lot that you can learn from the younger generation in regards to things and I, I think that's one of the great things about life is that if you remove the status symbol that comes with people and realise that we're all just human beings doing our best living yes. our life the, the, our best life that we can um, you know there's so much we can take from each other yes. and, and, and somebody like Oscar just the fact that she was still that she is still doing tai chi at ninety nine yes. years of age. Yes, holy crap, that's amazing. Although she did say to me not long ago that she's having a bit of difficulty with her twirls. Okay, <laughs> go, Oscar. I hope you're listening <laughs> to this. You go, girl. What? How's the feedback been from the first release? You know, we'll talk about what we're going to be doing next. But when you first released that book, how how do people respond to it? Um, delightful story, fabulous illustrations. So it was illustrated by Richard Marmon, who is a um, an author, artist, musician, illustrator from the Sunshine Coast. And he actually illustrated How to Stop Your Words from Bumping into Someone Else's entirely mm. different illustrations. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so the feedback has been positive. Um, and, yeah, um, one of your authors, uh, Jennifer Calvert, her daughter wanted to meet Elska. Oh, wow. She yeah went through a period of um, wanting the book read constantly and wanting to meet Elska. Um, just lovely comments from as far away as France. Um, and Elska buys one every time a baby is born at church overseas friends you know so that's <laughs> fantastic yeah, so there's been uh, a lot of feedback from different countries so for something that like we said before like writing uh that book and and publishing it and obviously the new one with your with your dad's story i mean there's a very personal reason of why you did it but to have that kind of um public feedback from mm. it is, is quite phenomenal and helps solidify that confidence that you you know this is your calling to be a writer to be an author uh, that's that's exactly right not necessarily of children's books although i did start teaching myself th the trumpet uh, because you're supposed to be able to have some sort of gimmick if you go into schools and and sell your books 
So I thought, well, what better way to encourage uh, children to learn to play and show them, hey, I did, and I was 65. You know, my hair's white. Look at me. You can do it. <laughs> but I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I will end up going into schools, but that's something that I, And now I get so much joy. <laughs> I'm absolutely crap, but I get so much joy out of it. I hear you go. I mean, you don't want to listen to me on the guitar. I've got some fast fire questions for you. Okay. Okay. So uh, uh, well, before we get to that, we're re-releasing. Yes, we, yes, Bamber to Kane. coincide with her 100th birthday. Right. Well, when does she turn 100? In late August. God, you haven't given me much time. What are we going to do? We'll have to have a talk about yeah, that Yeah, we will. Yeah. All right. Okay. What's the most important thing you've learned in, in your life? Be yourself. Oh, love it. Love it. What inspires you, Rhonda? Um, people with stories. Um, yeah. Yeah? Intelligent people who've got wonderful things to say. That's so good. That's so good. Your favourite word? Cabinet. What? Cabinet. Okay, unpack that. <laughs> Why the hell? In the railway settlements in Taranaki and the Rangitiki where I grew up, there was a cabinet in the sitting room. Kids weren't allowed to play in the sitting room in those days. Um, that was where you... The, your guests came in too. Uh, and the cabinet was full of all the precious china. When I got into that room, I could have a look at the precious china and choose what I would ask for when I grew up. Really? I got it. Oh, Rhonda. And cabinet. I have one, uh, one of those cabinets just like <laughs> I think I've seen it. I think I've seen it. Uh, music, favourite song or artist? Um. Song would be difficult because there are so many good ones. Um, Led Zeppelin, the Moody Blues, um, the the two that come to mind immediately. Um, Piaf, Edith Piaf. Okay. Uh, I'm not into middle of the road stuff. Uh, the stuff that young people like, the rap. I mean, yeah, hip hop. Yeah, yes, no, yeah. that's not me. I'm. No. I can't see you sitting down listening to Cardi B anytime soon or Fitty C. You don't want to listen to Cardi B, Wanda. It's not your genre. Led Zeppelin. (laughs) Yeah. So much in Led Zeppelin. The Celtic and the Mississippi Delta Blues. Wow. Passionate about Led Zeppelin. Do you listen to a lot of music? Don't really have time. And remember that when when the children were growing up, I couldn't have a radio on because I needed to hear Lindley. Everywhere, because he would stand um, on, we have a two-storey house, he'd stand on the top floor on his um, cupboard, which was about this high, and he'd recite out the open window. So I had to know where he was all the time. Right. So I no, I don't get a chance to look, listen to you. Well, I know you've got Spotify on your phone. Yeah, I have <laughs> got a lot of things this wonderful <laughs> young man that i'm writing for he just says Rhonda, give me your phone and then <laughs> there's canopy spotify google analytics i don't know how to use any of them but he's put them all there <laughs> uh, it all, all takes good good time if there were no barriers or constraints financially or otherwise in your life what would you be doing right now i'd be um um i'd establish somewhere for people where Lind- like Lindley, where they could live, 
that's always been the answer, but it's been slightly different. As they were growing up, it was a school um, for autistic children um, and other children who wanted to come to it. So that's changed. Um, and surround ourselves with the kind of support people that he's out with today who are, uh, who are wonderful. And then I could write. There we go. <laughs> so you're pretty close to living exactly yes, what you want. Yes. That's too yes. good. Three people you could invite for dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? Dylan Thomas. Okay, yeah. Um, Tchaikovsky. Okay. And my dad. Oh, too good. Yeah. Too good. That would be a nice dinner. Rhonda, I want to thank you so much for coming and sitting down and talking to me about you, your family, your writing. Oscar, looking forward to that. It's been really good to catch up with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And for you guys, you want to go and check out www.rondavalentinedixon.com.au. Go and check out more of her writing, her books that she's published. There's three on there. Yeah, there is three on there. Yeah, yeah, I saw three on there this morning. Go and check them out and keep an eye out for the re-release of Grandma Elska's Bamboo Cane. She lost it. How did she find it? See you guys next time. Be creative, be inspired, be published. You have been listening to an author angle brought to you by ocean reeve publishing bringing stories to life